The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. Typically, we'll be going through a book of the Bible, usually in the New Testament, which is the New Covenant, and we are benefactors of the New Covenant, and we'll go through a book, start at the beginning of the throne, every once in a while we pause and do a theme or something special, recognize a holiday or a time of the season. So uh, taking that opportunity today, because it is Mother's Day, to see what God has to say about mothers and the role, and God has much to say about it. We don't get the opportunity to do that much, but it's very important because the family or marriage really is kind of the building block of society, marriages. Marriage isn't just the building block of the family, but the very, like, as the cells to the body, marriage is to society. So, talking about God's perspective on marriage and the distinctive roles in marriage from God's point of view is a word that we need. So, we're going to go and see what God has to say about it in the Bible and Scripture. This is needed today in light of our culture, which is antagonistic to what God has to say about the most fundamental institution that he created, the family and marriage. Depending upon where you live in the country or the world, it seems to be getting more antagonistic and challenging for a Christian. Here in America, if you didn't live through the 60s or weren't around, that was a tumultuous time in the 1960s, where much of biblical culture and the biblical worldview that had influenced and shaped America in its early days in the 1960s was there was a revolution basically and much of that was turned on its head turned upside down where the world attacked the very institution of marriage and the very institution of the family and then it got ramped up and over time not only did they attack the institution of marriage and the family, they began to attack the specific roles within the family, and in particularly the role of a woman. And the secular viewpoint, sometimes even the viewpoint of the government, was that it minimized, looked down upon in a condescending and judgmental way of the traditional role of the woman in the family as a wife, as a mother, as a caretaker of the home. And so then that was under assault very specifically. So first it was the institution of marriage, and then it was the role of the woman herself. It was brainwashed. And we've been brainwashed now for about four decades, at least from our culture, telling us that a woman really doesn't have any value or self-respect if she's just a wife and a mother and at home, that she receives true value, worth, dignity by being out in the workforce. And that's where her identity should be. So we've been hearing that. That's not new. But it is getting worse. It's becoming more more overt. And the attack on the biblical model becoming more aggressive. and, And then it just gets worse from there. And so recently in the last five years, not only is the institution of the family attack, the role of the wife under siege, But just in the last five years, it's just the very identity of a human being is either male or female. You can't even say without cause of a reaction or offending somebody that there are boys and girls, men and women, males and females. Because of this utter evisceration of the identity of the first two people that God made, Adam and Eve. And all people fall into those two categories as he created them. So now we're told there are more than one gender. There's a zillion genders. You can change your gender. It's fluid. And you have to believe it. Otherwise, you are under assault or attack. It's even becoming codified in the laws of the land in which we live. So attacking the very reality and definition that could be proven scientifically that there's only male and female where we are today it's it's actually quite startling and unbelievable by the way it's not going to get any better it's going to get worse it's like 
exponentially getting worse. So imagine, I mean, 10 years ago, I couldn't even conceive of where we are today. So imagine what it's going to be like in five or 10 more years with an entire culture and younger generation being brainwashed on the most, being redefined at the most fundamental level of what a family is, what a marriage is, what a male is, what a gender is, what, a, what the roles should be. Guarantee, it's, good, it's just going to get worse. Redefining marriage. Polygamy's coming, so you know, here in America. And other twisted views of marriage, they're coming. Some of you haven't even heard of or thought of yet. It'll be here, among other things. So how appropriate that we can go back to God's unchanging word and be reminded of just the most fundamental, basic, simple truth, and that's what marriage is about, how God defined it, and what the fundamental roles of what make a marriage work. That's what we're going to look at today. So our main passage is going to be 1 Peter 3. We'll be looking at a couple of other scriptures as well, but before we go there, here's the question of the day. You don't need to answer out loud, but it's just to prompt some thinking on your part before we look at our text in 1 Peter 3. And the question is what, and this is if you're a Christian, those of you who know Jesus Christ, you're confident and sure you're a believer, believe in the Bible. This question is for you. If you're not a Christian, you're not sure, then you can eavesdrop in. That's okay. But the question is, what is your greatest desire in life? I don't care if you're a seven-year-old Christian, a 17-year-old Christian, a 77-year-old Christian. It's my question. What is your greatest desire in life or what is your ultimate goal as you live day to day as a Christian? What answers pop into your head? Well, it, here's what it should be as a Christian. It's a no-brainer that your greatest desire, your ultimate goal should be as a Christian to please God, right? To please God, amen. To please God in all that we do. That should be our desire. Confession time. That is not always my greatest desire. That's shameful. But we know what our greatest desire should be. It should be to please God, to do things that God wants us to do. We should be doing things that are precious to God. And you know what is most precious to God and what pleases God most is obedience. Obedience in accordance with his word. That's true of all of us. And that, it's hard to do, isn't it? Even as a Christian. So we need God's help. And God offers his help. And with respect to being a woman or a female, we want to look at First Peter 3 today. Uh, in this, it's talking about marriage, the passage. It's actually verses 1 through 7 and Peter has one basic command for wives in his day that were Christians, and he has one command for husbands who were Christians in his day. It's real simple, very concise, totally. It's very compacted. So he's focusing on, and there's a, many things that Peter could have said by way of things that Christian wives and Christian husbands needs to work, need to work on. But he narrowed it down just to one each, and it was the priority. You know, there could be about 11 things you need to work on, but... Peter's like, if you could just choose one, here's the most important, husbands and wives. Here's the most important thing that you need to work on and ask for God's help in. And so the sermon today is what pleases God, a woman who pleases God. And I get that from uh, the end of verse 4 where Peter, through the Spirit of God, is talking to women. These are Christian women in Peter's day living in a very pagan, corrupt compromised secular culture and these women came to know the lord and he's talking to the wives some of the wise husbands did not come to christ yet and he narrows his command down to one we're going to see it in a second but he tells them at the end of verse four he says if you do this most important thing if you do this it is precious in the sight of God. That's such a beautiful phrase at the end of verse 4. It is precious in the sight. If you are a Christian female here today, and again, this passage is directly to married women, but it doesn't only apply to married women. This actually applies to any woman. Whether you haven't even been married yet, whether you're single, the truths here are universal, transcendent, and they apply to every woman, every woman of God. And if your heart's desire is, you know, my greatest desire is to please God, 
I want to please God. Well, to answer that question, well, how do I please God? There's only one place you can go. It's not your agenda, my agenda, a human definition, or we can't just conjure up things that we think please God. Humans make that mistake all the time. Oh, I think this will please God. I think this will please God. Many times it doesn't at all. But he does tell us what a priority is for one that pleases him, that delights him. There aren't many times in Scripture where it says a very specific thing pleases God, delights God, or you do something that he considers valuable or priceless is really the word used here by Peter. So you as a fallen, finite human being, as a female, have the opportunity in a real way to do something that pleases God, that he finds precious by the way you carry yourself and live your life. What is it? Well, it's not impossible. He lays it out for us. So we're going to look at that. And that should really be, if you're a woman who knows Christ, that should be the target in your life that you're always looking at. Keep your eyes on Jesus as a Christian, and then also at the center of that, the bullseye of that goal, following your eyes on Jesus, it's also, as a woman of God, it is, I want to please God. And one of the ways I want to do that is this priority way that Peter said. This pleases God. So let's go ahead and look at it. Uh, before we get to First Peter 1, actually, I, I do want to look at uh, Proverbs 31 and just read one verse out of there because that's kind of laying the foundation. But before I read Proverbs 31, you know, that's the traditional Mother's Day passage. That's why I didn't preach on it today. You've probably heard a sermon on that, maybe. But I want to draw your attention to Romans 15 first. Romans 15, this is by the Apostle Paul. Uh, again, writing to, for the most part, Gentiles who got saved. They were pagans. They weren't, most of them were not Jews. But the Apostle Paul knew that they had some background, and since they became Christians, they had access to the Old Testament. And so he's reminding them uh, about the importance of the Old Testament. He quotes from the Old Testament in Romans. He's basing biblical truth for them that's relevant for the day based on Old Testament. He expects them to understand and know the Old Testament. He assumes that they do have access to the Old Testament scriptures. He even quotes it in chapter 15, verse 3. And after talking about the principles taught in the Old Testament that are true in the New Testament, basically he reminds them, uh, yeah, you got your New Testament apostles, you got me, I'm giving you a direct revelation, but you're responsible for the Old Testament. You need to read it, you need to know it, you need to live by it. God gave it to the church for a reason, your Old Testament. You don't just throw it out, it's of equal authority. There's practical value to studying and reading and following the Old Testament. Verse 4 of chapter 15 in Romans. For whatever was written in earlier times, okay, that's the Old Testament. Okay, Christian, pay attention. The Old Testament is important. And here's one of the reasons God gave us and preserved the Old Testament for Christians. For whatever was written in earlier times in the Old Testament was written for our instruction. We can't just blow off the Old Testament. We need to look at the Old Testament. It teaches us there's important instruction there. We accumulate knowledge from God so that for the purpose of that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures we learn from the old testament we're encouraged by the old testament encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope the old testament gives us hope and faith so there's benefits to reading and studying the old testament so it was written for our instruction you could go to first corinthians 10 where paul says the same thing know the old testament read it study it follow it has been written for an example so okay paul let's obey him and let's go to proverbs 31 that was written in the old testament Some people think that Psalm 31 was written by Solomon's mother or under the influence of his mother. We're not quite sure. But if that's true, then it was written about a thousand years before Christ. Uh, Proverbs chapter 31. Uh, Proverbs 31, verses 10 to the end of the chapter in Hebrew are an acrostic. It's beautiful using the Hebrew letters all the way from Aleph down to the last letter. Of the alphabet, so it's it is poetry, but it's true. It's inspired. It's probably a real life explanation of this superwoman, and she loved God. And it goes on and just describes an amazing mother, a godly wife, a sincere believer, and it lays out. It's descriptive of how she lives her life, how she conducts her life, what her priorities are. What's her priority? Well, her family's her priority. Her marriage is her priority. Her children are her priority. But serving others is her priority. And you learn all these traits through description. And 
1 Corinthians 10 and Romans 15, 4 says we need to take note of this. We need to learn from this. This is instructive for us. We need to apply it and follow the model and example. So that's the ideal place to go if you're a woman of God and you want to aspire to a target that is livable. It's right here, Proverbs 31, among many. And so you see this woman doing all these amazing things. She's a hard worker. She is, she is not lazy. She doesn't sleep in, at least not very often from this passage. She's compassionate towards the poor. She's selfless and is just preoccupied with serving others. She's wise and gives wisdom to those around her, particularly her children. She's a good manager. She has maids or servants. She treats them well. They respect her. She's committed to her marriage as kind of the foundation of all of her practical living and inner relationships with other people. That's a priority. She nurtures it. She protects it. She does everything she can to serve it and her husband. We know that because of her husband's attitude towards her. He compliments her. He has a reputation in town that, man, you got an amazing wife. Your wife is very godly. She is impressive. This is an amazing woman. Well, all of this really means nothing unless you have the end of chapter 31 in order. So after giving all these traits and attributes about this amazing woman, it concludes with the crescendo, the most important thing to keep in mind about this woman. Verse 30, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. None of this has to do with exteriors, the shallow superficials of life. It's not external. It's deeper than that. It's internal. It has to do with her attitude, her thoughts, her beliefs, her priorities, her character, her demeanor. She has the right priorities. Priority number one is she loves God. She loves Yahweh. She knows Yahweh. She's sensitive to Yahweh, the God of the Bible. That's where it starts. Knowing God personally. So that is the kind of the foundation as we go into 1 Peter 3 for our women today, because you, you can't do what First Peter 3 asks you to do if you don't know Yahweh, if you don't have a relationship with the creator of the universe. And for us today, we know that comes only one way, and that is through bowing the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. So that's the priority right there. She fears the Lord. That's an Old Testament idiom uh, that you can define about 15 different ways. She fears the Lord. She has reverence for God. She loves God. She thinks about God. God is her priority. She does everything in service to God. She has a vibrant walk with God. She's a sinner before a holy God, and she knows it. She fears him. She wants and needs his forgiveness. She pleads for forgiveness. Fear, fear God. And God is gracious to forgive her because she believes in God in accordance with truth. She knows this God. Personally, and so fast forward now to the New Testament in our day, 2,000 years later, and you. So let's go ahead and look at First Peter 3, and we'll look at verses 1 through 6 on what is, if you could just pick one thing, and you're a female Christian, one thing that you could work on and think about that pleases God. Well, it's right here. Thank you, Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to remind us of this. And this should dominate your thinking. This should gauge your thinking and dictate your life day to day to day to day. And only with God's help can we possibly do that. By the way, um, I mean, I've said that this isn't just for wives and mothers, even though that's the immediate context and the direct application. But just being a female, you can still implement these principles, and hopefully we'll see how you can do that. So let's go ahead and look at it. Let me just read through the passage. Uh, Peter is talking to not just wives, but he's also talking. By the way, husbands, do you know Father's Day is coming? Guess what the sermon is that day? Uh-huh. Proverbs 32, the virtuous man, even though there is no Proverbs 32, but it's a coming. Actually, it's two sermons because I have so much to say to the guys. But anyway, so Peter's talking to wives and husbands and employers and employees and citizens who live in society. That's the context. Here's how you need to live as a Christian in every venue in your life. And he just talked about citizens, how they're supposed to relate to corrupt, compromised, pagan, unbelieving rulers. 
well, we have some of those today, don't we? Well, he says in verse 13, chapter 2, well, be submissive to those pagan rulers. And then he goes and talks about your job. Say you have a master. Say you're a slave. You work for this human being, and this human being maybe uh, is your master, and he's a mean master. He's a corrupt and an immoral master. He's a, he abuses his slaves. He's in it just for the money. That could be some masters weren't. As a matter of fact, most masters, slave owners in, in this day, were not believers. Some got saved, some slave owners, and that changed their attitude in their heart. But uh, Peter said it doesn't matter if your master is a Christian or not, your slave owner, you still need to treat him the same way, and that's with respect and submit to his authority. So that's... Uh, chapter 2, verse 18, servants, slaves, be submissive to your master. So be submissive, verse 13, be submissive, verse 18. Uh, and then he goes on in verse chapter 3, verse 1, in the same way, in other words, be submissive in all areas of life. So let's go ahead and look at it. This is to the women. In, in the same way or likewise, just as I talked about submitting to civil leaders, just as I talked about submitting to your masters if you're a slave, so also wives, in the same way, be submissive. So the same word submissive is used in verse 13 and also in verse 18 of chapter 2. It's the same word. Uh, in the same way, likewise, you wives, those of you who are married, be submissive to your own husbands. I like that word own. They're your own husband because uh, he makes it clear. If you're a female, you're not responsible for submitting to every man on the street just because he's male. No. It's not true. You, you need to submit to your own husband, not to everybody else's husband, generically and generally speaking. So he is very specific. So that even if any of them, the husbands, are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Now, your adornment or decor or appearance must not be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing golden jewelry, putting on dresses, but rather let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable or incorruptible or unfading quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times in the Old Testament, the old, the holy women of old also who hoped in God, they were believers, used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands. Just for example, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, yeah, Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord or master. And you have become Sarah's children if you do what is right and model her behavior without being frightened or terrorized, literally, by any fear. So there it is. Peter lays it on. Okay, ladies, I got one shot in my epistle to give the most basic priority command for a woman of God. And here it is. Boom. What is that command? It's. Be submissive to your husband. That's it. Everything else in that passage is explaining, highlighting, illustrating, elucidating that one truth. Real simple, isn't it? So if you're a woman of God and you want to keep growing and keep maturing, and most importantly, you want to please God, then you focus on that one thing. If you're married, submitting to your husband. So let's go ahead and look at it and see what... Peter has to say about that. So I've just taken this text and I, I came up with a basic outline if you want to follow along. Just three main points. There's the exhortation, which is a command. The exhortation of this passage, that's the beginning of verse 1. After the exhortation is the explanation. He has several points to explain that command. Because you might be sitting here this morning as a woman or a wife and you hear this command and maybe your first reaction isn't a good one. Ooh, this is hard. Or maybe it's like, oh, really? Or, wow, that's not as easy to do. Or maybe your answer was, well, you don't know my husband. I've been, quite a, I've been in quite a few counseling sessions with married couples where I've heard that roll off the lips of Christian wives over the past decades, actually. Well, Peter understands that. Peter was married, by the way. Pope Peter, he was married. First Corinthians 9 says he was married. So he understands this. So the exhortation is verse 1, and then the explanation is verse 1 through 4. And then after the exhortation and the explanation, then there's a practical illustration. Point number 3 is the illustration, uh, 5 and 6. So there's the exhortation or the command, submit to your husband. Then there's the explanation. Well, how do you do that? How do you submit to your husband in light of all the challenges? And then... There's a beautiful picture that 
Because you might be thinking, wait, is this even possible what Peter is requiring? Well, yeah, it is because it's been done before. You might be thinking, well, I don't know any women like that. Well, no, they're around. You're just not aware or paying attention. But there's definitely some in the Old Testament, holy women of old, that he's specifically referring to. Holy women of old, the, the Proverbs 31 woman, if that was Solomon's mother or whoever that woman was. Ruth. There's a statement, I think it's in Ruth chapter 3, where Boaz, they're about to get married. And Boaz is about to take her as his wife. And Boaz says to Ruth, all the people in this town know you are an excellent woman. It's an, it's an amazing statement. So Ruth, uh, that one lady that was married to that knucklehead guy in the days of David, he was just a terrible husband. And she was just a submissive, amazing woman. Um, so there are examples. And then the specific one that he gives is Sarah. So let's go ahead and look at and just walk through these. Get God's help as to how we can fulfill these. So let's look first at the exhortation. In the same way, okay, ladies, wives, those of you who are married, be submissive to your own husbands. That's the exhortation. In the same way, likewise. Well, my husband, maybe, probably in Peter's day, a lot of these wives that he's commanding, they probably had a husband who wasn't even a Christian yet. That was a huge problem because 2,000 years ago in the Greco-Roman culture, uh, women were inferior. They didn't really have any rights. They were not valued. They were like quasi-persons. They were basically the property of their husbands and the state. And if they weren't married yet, they were property of their father. Really? There were no women's rights. And definitely in the home, they were doormats for their husband. They could be discarded at a whim. They could be beaten and abused with no repercussions or accountability on the husband. As a matter of fact, that was encouraged, kind of like the family dog. Not exaggerating. But the gospel and Christianity brought in a whole new worldview, an elevated woman from down here in the gutter to up here where she should be equal with man. Because that's God's design. God's design is clear and laid out in Scripture. God said in the beginning, we know this, Genesis 1, God said, let us, the Trinity, make man in our image. Let, let's Actually, what he said was, let us make humans in our image. And in the image of God, he created them male and female. So when God said, we need to make humanity in our image, it wasn't just a man by himself. It was man and woman together is what fully reflects the image of God. So that put men and women on an equal level in terms of inherent value from God's point of view. So when you have a command like this that wives need to submit to their husband, that has nothing to do with, it's not talking about inferiority of any kind whatsoever. There's no moral inferiority here. There's no personal inferiority here. There's no gender inferiority here. There's no psychological inferiority, no intellectual inferiority. That, is, that has nothing to do with it. This has strictly to do with roles, roles and function. God said, Adam and Eve reflect the full image of God. Then God pronounced and said that the man and the woman together are one flesh. So it's not husband here and woman down here in terms of inferiority. It's together. They're a team. They're partners. That's God's way he created them. As a matter of fact, Adam testified this on his wedding day when he first saw the woman, how beautiful she was. And he said, he is like, whoa. I mean, he had seen all these animals that had partners and he didn't have a partner. And then he sees the perfect partner on the day of creation. She is flawless. She is sinless. She's right in front of him and is, it just blurted out of his mouth. But how wonderful he, she is from me. I will call her woman. Now she is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. You know what that means? She's just like me. That is the equality of man and woman together. So women have, from God's point of view, inherent dignity, value, sanctity, worth, just as much as a man. So get that out of your mind. Don't twist the scripture like the world wants to do, citing this passage to say that Christians are in the dark ages, archaic age, and we don't value women. That's not true. Christianity values women more than any other worldview, religion, or culture in the history of the world. And that's evidenced in the Bible, and it's evidenced by the ministry of Jesus Christ and the writings of the apostles. So that's God's view. They're on the same team. But they have a very specific role. 
This is all, this is about function. And you need, everybody on a team needs to have an identified role. Otherwise you have chaos, havoc, and you will be defeated. When you have a well taught, coached, orchestrated team, whether it's a sports team or whatever, or whether it's the orchestra and all of their musicians, everybody knows exactly what their role is. You're on cue. There's always a leader. And this has nothing to do with inequality. It all has everything to do with role and function. If you're a woman here today and you are offended, you are incensed by this command from God that, wife, you need to submit to your husband, listen to this. You know who else had to subject themselves to this very command? That was Jesus. Early on in the Gospel of John, Jesus declared, and he said this, John chapter 10, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. What did that mean? Well, the Jewish leaders were incensed. They wanted to stone him to death for claiming to be God because he was claiming to be God. He was claiming to be equal in deity with God the Father himself. That was a declaration of deity on Jesus' part. I am equal with the Father. We are one. We've lived forever together, eternally, uncreated, in perfect fellowship, harmony, and unity. So Jesus ontologically speaking, in his very nature and essence as a person, was equal with God the Father. But a little later on, I think it's in John 14, he said this. After saying, I and the Father are one, he said, the Father is greater than I. Oh, those seem to contradict. Wait, what do you mean? The Father is greater than me. Now, Jesus wasn't saying that he was inferior to the Father because he already declared he was God, he was equal with God, he was one with God, he was one with the Father, he's always been with the Father, but he's making a distinction. He said, the Father is greater than me right now in the incarnation in terms of the role that I am fulfilling, a function. It's a temporary function I have on earth for 33 years as the Savior, as the Messiah, as the suffering Savior in fulfillment of scriptures. I condescended, I came down, I took on human flesh to be not to be served, but to serve. And I happily, willingly took on that role of the Savior and gave up the sovereign exercise of all of my attributes as deity and God that were rightfully mine in eternity past. And now I subject myself. And as a matter of fact, he goes on to say in the Gospel of John, he does nothing except that which the Father has shown him. You talk about submission and obedience. So it has nothing to do with value. It's not demeaning in any way. It's God's plan, and it's the perfect plan. It's what works. It's what preserves harmony. It's what creates efficacy, and most of all, it's what pleases God. And that's why after 33 years, Jesus is about to die, and he prays to the Father and said, I've done everything you told me to do. I was 100% obedient and submissive to you in all things. That pleased the Father. That was precious to the Father. And the Father rewarded him as a resort, a result. So probably the best illustration that you can use as a wife to kind of wrap your mind around, how does this work? Because, uh, you know, there is a difference between the submission of Jesus to the Father because, get this, Jesus was perfect and God the Father is perfect. Now, wives, if your husband was perfect, probably, it's probably be easier to submit and obey. Someday he will be perfect. Yeah, that's in heaven, but then you won't have to submit and obey anymore. But there is a parallel in something that that model you can follow. This beautiful, God-ordained submission, it's actually a good thing. Ephesians 5 helps us out in a parallel passage on this command because Ephesians 5, Paul says the same thing. He's addressing families in verse 22 and 23. And he tells the wise, wise be submissive, submissive, submit to. Upatasso is one of the words. Upa akuo. This is another word. They're synonymous. Obey and submit. That means get under. Get get in line. It's kind of a military term. Get in rank. Okay, there's the general. There's the colonel. There's the sergeant. There's the lowly private or whatever. Everybody has a rank. It has nothing to do with character because everybody's submitting to and obeying the general, and the general could be as corrupt as the devil himself. And you could have a Christian private. He still has to submit to that corrupt general. Because it's the right thing to do. This is the hierarchy that God has laid out. And it pleases God to submit to that. But it's a military term. So get in line, get under, submit, live your life accordingly. This is how you do it. A little helpful uh, 
passage in Ephesians 5, 22, and then also in Colossians 3, 18, where Paul tells us what the parameters are. The command is not submit to your own husband in everything, no matter what, regardless of what he does. That is not the command. There are parameters. There are guidelines. There are conditions. The condition is submit to your husband, your own husband, in the Lord. In the Lord. Those are the parameters. In the fear of the Lord. In other words, if your husband's trying to tell you to do something immoral, unethical, contrary to God's will, you don't have to do it as a wife. For example, say the wife is responsible for doing the taxes for the IRS, and and the Christian husband tells the Christian wife, oh, don't count this because I don't want that to get taxed because I want to get more money back. And the wife and her conscience, and she's a woman of God, she's ethical, no, we're not going to do that. And then they have a little squabble or a fight, too bad. If she doesn't want to do it, she doesn't have to. That would be an, an example. But in, So those are the parameters in keeping with God's will. Now, if it's just a gray area or an opinion that the wife and the husband, they talk about it, they think it through, they maybe pray for, get counsel, whatever, they still come back and they're, they have loggerheads and there's gridlock and they still can't agree, the wife has to submit to the husband when the decision is made. That's God's will. That pleases him. So that's what... Peter's talking about. So those uh, cross-references are helpful. Uh, Titus 2 is another passage where one of the ministries and addresses to the women in the church, Paul tells the younger women, find an older woman, get discipled by her. Older ladies, you need to be discipling the younger women and gives a couple of things that they need to focus on. The older women need to teach the younger women, the wives and moms how to love their children. I thought that's kind of interesting. And the older women need to teach their wives how to the older wives need to teach the younger wives how to love their husband. That's what it says. So wife, loving your husband in all ways fully according to God's way doesn't come naturally. It doesn't come intuitively. Many times it's contrary to our very nature or what we think. And also what compounds that is the fact that you married a sinner. He's a sinful husband. He can either be a believer or an unbeliever. But he is a flesh. He is finite. He is weak. God knows that. But that's still God's design. So you need to be taught, wow, how do, you, how do you do this? I'm having a hard time with my unsaved husband and I'm a Christian wife. We saw that in India. Every time we go to India, we visit all these churches. They're packed out with all these women and they're married. And then Pastor John Paul told, where, where's all the, the men or the husbands? Oh, they're not believers. They're Hindus. And the women, these Christian women, they're still married to their husbands who aren't Christians. They're still submissive, or at least trying to be, faithful, loving, trying to win them over, which takes us to point number two after the exhortation. So, yeah, get that exhortation in your mind. There it is. That's the command. Wow, what a challenge. Submit to my husband. What kind of husband? Well, it takes us... Now he's going to explain this. So I want to answer or deal with this exhortation because you might have a question. How do I do this? How do I submit to my husband who is not a Christian or he's unlovely or he has bad habits or he's prideful or he's sinful? Yeah, like every other husband. So Peter's going to help us out and explain it. Here are some things you can do to consider. Uh, first of all, you need to understand why are you doing You're submitting to your husband for a purpose. There's a purpose statement here. Submit to your husband, by the way. Be submissive in an ongoing, regular, continual fashion as a lifestyle. That's what it means. Submit to, get in line, get under, is the idea. And here's the purpose of you do that. There's a beginning at the middle of verse 1. It says, so that for the purpose of, if you're an ongoing, regular, submissive, godly wife to your husband, even if he's a knucklehead and not a Christian, or even if he's a Christian and he has sinful habits, God has a purpose in mind here. You're going to accomplish something great. This is Matthew 5:13. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. If you live godly, the unbelieving world, they're going to look at you, your life, and fall down and worship the true God. That's what it says. Your godly life is an apologetic for your sinful husband. So that's the purpose. There's a purpose beyond you. It's God's purpose. And you can help accomplish that purpose. That's why it's so pleasing to God. So here's the purpose. So that even if any of them, the husbands, are disobedient. There it is. This, this is amazing that Paul, uh, I mean, Peter and the Spirit of God choose a very generic word for disobedient. 
them uh, so that even if any of the husbands are disobedient to the word, because all the commentaries ask, well, is this a Christian or not a Christian husband? Is this an unsaved husband? Well, Peter doesn't tell us. It's just it is a husband who is disobedient. It's a very generic word. You ever heard the word apathetic? That's the Greek word here. Who is apathetic towards the word? It's just a kind of a generic. He ha- a is negative pathos. He has no passion. He's kind of ho-hum about God's word and God's requirements. That's what the word. He's apathetic when it comes to obedience. He's apathetic to God's law. He's apathetic to the holiness of God. That's the definition here of the sin here. It's very general. It's very generic. Uh, A Christian husband can have this kind of sin in his life. And this also could be referring to an unsaved husband. Doesn't matter. The solution is the same. The goal is the same. The goal is to win the husband over. So look at if you live this way, there is a possibility so that even if your husband is disobedient, whether he's a Christian or not a Christian, and you live this way, God can use that so that they may be one. There it is. May be one without a word by the behavior of their wives. The goal is to win your husband, to win him over, to win his affection, to win his love, to win his loyalty. Most of all, to win his repentance. And God can do that through your obedience. That's what the word, the word for when there is the same word used in the church discipline process of Matthew 18, verse 15, where Jesus says, confront the sinner. And if you do it the right way, you may win your brother. Same word. And that's a, that's a brother. That's a Christian. So if a Christian is sinning, you want to win. If your husband's a Christian, you want to win him over from his sin. In other words, what does it look like? Repentance, a softening of the heart. And God can help you. But if he's not a Christian, the husband, maybe God will save him by your behavior. He'll just be awed. At, wow, you've changed. You're an amazing, awesome wife. Whoa, what happened to you? Oh, I came to know Christ. And God can use that. And he has to save many hardened husbands. So that's the purpose. And notice he says, how do you win them? Well, by being submissive and you do it without a word. So you're not depending upon your words, your arguments, your nagging, as the book of Proverbs says. Don't nag. It's not your words that's going to win him over. Don't put the John 3.16 sticker on his beer can. <laughs> or the, yeah, the Bible tract in his shaving kit. Nope. Not with words, with godly supportive behavior, without a word. So that's what you don't do. But what do you do? Oh, there's a couple other things about what you shouldn't do. Um, so you're submitting, you're being godly as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. The, the, the word for observe is very specific. They're constantly watching you. They're noticing things. Why? Because you live together and they notice the change, the supernatural change. God's changed your heart. God's working in you. The spirit of God is working in you and he can't deny it. What is he observing? He's observing your behavior on the inside. It's chaste and respectful behavior, meek and humble behavior, respectful behavior, your pure behavior. It's on the inside, the internal fruits of the Holy Spirit being wrought by God through his word, through your obedience. It's a conscious decision on the inside. And that's what oozes out. And that's what he sees. It is undeniable. And God is on the way of winning your husband over, whether it's to salvation or repenting for leaving the socks on the floor. And then he says the negative verse three, your dormant must not be merely external braided hair, wearing golden jewelry, putting on dresses. I, I literally about a month ago had, I was counseling a woman and she's not in this church and had other counselors and the other counts, Bible counselors told her to win your husband over. You need to dress nice and put on extra perfume and put more makeup on. I'm like, wow, that's exactly what this says. Isn't going to do it. Your dormant should not be external. Braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, putting on dresses. By the way, this isn't saying you can't wear jewelry. It's just saying don't depend on that. Don't depend on the superficial. It's internal. That's what counts for God. That's what counts for your husband. That's what he needs. Rather, verse 4, let it be the hidden person of the heart. There it is. It's all about your character, your demeanor, your attitude, what God's doing on, going, doing in the innermost recesses of your heart through his spirit, the spirit of God living in you, producing the fruits of the spirit, rooted in flowing out of your prayer life, your wise counsel from other people, your accountability from other godly women. So there it is. On the inside, the hidden person of the heart, with which is imperishable, unlike your fancy clothes. Imperishable, incorrectable quality. Here it is, of a gentle and quiet spirit. That's what God wants you to be, ladies. Whether you're married or not married. What pleases God is having a gentle and quiet spirit. What does that mean? Being soft-spoken, 
is what it means. Being soft-spoken, among other things. The words are very specific. There's two words together. It, here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean being demanding or unbridled. It doesn't mean being pushy and complaining with your husband. It doesn't mean to be harsh and nagging. It doesn't mean to be mean and screeching. It doesn't mean to be nitpicking and piercing. It doesn't mean to be loud and boisterous. Just the opposite. Meek and still. Especially in times of controversy. Humble and calm. Patient and tranquil. Tender and secure. You're secure in your relationship with God knowing that he is in charge of the situation. He knows what a knucklehead my husband is. I'm good. Tender and secure. Tactful and timely. Words. Gracious and soft-spoken. Kind and discreet. Those are all good synonyms paired with what pleases God. So that's the explanation. God wants you to be successful and grow in this area. Then finally, the illustration. This is real simple. He gives Sarah with Abraham as an example. Well, I can't do that. My husband's a knucklehead. Well, Abraham was a bigger knucklehead. He's a believer. He committed adultery. He lied. They were married for over 100 years. He's got a longer list of sins than any husband you'll ever meet. Yet Sarah was a believer. She loved her husband. She was committed to her husband. She forgave her husband. She respected her husband. She treated him with respect and reverence is the word here used, fear. She feared Abraham in a legitimate way, a good way. It just means respect. God's given him as the head of my marriage and my home. And I'm going to respect that because that's what God is pleased with. Despite all of Abraham's sins, and there were many, he was a pagan for 75 years, and they were still married at the time. So who's our illustration? Who's our example? Try to be, I think it's great that he says Sarah because uh, everything about their marriage, it had all kinds of problems in it. It was not the perfect marriage. It was not green grass. It was many times dried up brown grass with long weeds over the septic tank. So for in this way, in former times in the Old Testament, holy women. She, why was Sarah, who was a despicable sinner, called holy? Because she loved God and was forgiven of her sin. She feared God. A holy women of old also who hoped in God, they used to adorn themselves, not externally, but internally. They concentrated on the heart and what pleased God, being submissive to their own husbands. It was a priority for Sarah. She, she knew this pleased God. She knew that it would win Abraham over. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham. By the way, notice the word obeyed. It's a different Greek word than submissive. The word in verse 6 for obeyed is the same word used in Ephesians 6, 1, where it says, children, obey your parents. Really? Yeah. Now, wives don't have to obey their husband the same way children obey their parents because their relationship is different. The parameters are different. But the word, it just it's a synonym for submissive. When you submit to somebody, you comply, you do what they say. You follow their lead. When you obey, you hear what they say and you follow their lead. It's the same thing. It's a synonym. It's not a bad word. Sarah obeyed Abraham. She submitted to Abraham. She recognized him as the leader. She called him Lord, her master, sir. In other words, she gave him respect and it was practical. People could see it. She, just go, she wasn't going around talking about her husband, calling him a jerk and an idiot and an adulterer and a liar, all of which he was. She respected him preserved his reputation out of love and you have become her children if you do what is right you do the same way you act like sarah acts towards abraham god will bless you you'll have success from god himself and you can do it without being terrorized or frightened or threatened because you know why sometimes doing this takes a step of faith it's not easy to do and there's fear it's like oh what happens if i do that if i submit to him in this there's going to be drastic ramifications. The whole world is going to fall apart if I do that. If I say yes to my husband on this. And Peter's saying, no, trust God. Trust God, he'll put you at peace. So let me close with this, ladies, all females, whether you're married or not. Just to kind of bring it home and make it real practical. In light of Peter's exhortations and his explanation. Um, when it respect to your husband or authorities in your life, don't fight it. Don't fight it, don't resist it, don't argue with it, don't criticize it, don't buck it, don't undermine it, don't ignore it, don't dismiss it, 
Don't usurp it and try to take control. Don't overrule it, but rather welcome it. Embrace it that this is God's ordained role. And then specifically ask God to give you a quiet spirit, a gentle and quiet spirit. Just pray that specifically to God. God, give me a gentle and quiet spirit because it pleases you. It's valuable. It is precious. Also, as you pray, ask God to reveal any areas of weakness in your life in this area. You know what? God will answer that prayer. I guarantee you, you pray that sincerely, God will answer that prayer. When you ask God to reveal areas of weakness regarding this topic in your life, he will answer that prayer. And you know how he will answer that prayer? Through another person. And you probably won't like it. Number three, repent of recent violations of this requirement of God, if you have to. Number four, get accountability from godly women that you know, love, and respect who can help you. They've been down this road. Here's probably the most challenging one. This is kind of frightening. Number five, ask your husband how you can improve in this area. Whoo! There's only one way to do that, and that's number six. Humble yourself. Humble yourself. The book of James and the book of Peter say that if you humble yourself, there is a special blessing for you. God will exalt you at the proper time. And we can't do that on our own. We need his help, his strength, all of us to humble ourselves, help with his spirit. Let's go ahead and pray to the Father and ask for his help in all of this. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for Mother's Day. Again, we thank you for all of our wonderful, godly mothers, many who contribute to this local body in so many ways that bless us. We don't want to take that for granted. We entrust them to you. Go before them, protect them, help them grow, help them grow in their love and devotion for you, that you'd just be number one in their life in terms of their heart's desire and that everything else flows from there. God, we need the help of your Holy Spirit who lives in us to help all of us work on the inner man, our character, our demeanor. Our sin just continually nags at us and tries to take over. Father, forgive us. For our sin, we thank you that we have Jesus Christ, the sin bearer, who's taken care of our sin. We thank you for that, and we give him all the glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.